continue to be praying for our kids and our teachers. Um, it's a great opportunity for them to be able to do that uh, and come together. But I challenge you, uh, if you really want a soccer, I can give you a soccer too, um, uh, to, to memorize those things and help us understand more deeply our awesome God uh, together. It's online, so you can just go, or you can download the app if you're like me and just download the app on your phone. That's the New City Catechism. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Micah chapter 6 this morning. Coming to the end of Micah, as we are reminded more and more of who God is and what he has done for us as his people. Let us open up in prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we stand in awe and and wonder of of your grace and your mercy that you poured out on us. And Lord, I pray that as we become more aware of your grace, Lord, that we also would be a people of grace as well, that we would interact with one another um, and treat each other as you have treated us and are treating us. Lord, as we come into your word, Lord, I pray that you are indeed glorified, that you are praised, that your name is lifted up high. And Lord, as I'm well aware, there's no gifting that can do that outside of, that can do that well outside of you. So Lord, by your spirit, I pray that uh, you you would enable me to preach this sermon with what is needed that you would be glorified, that your people would be encouraged and spurred on, and that people, that, it, that you would call people to salvation as well. And amen. Micah chapter 6. This is the second last chapter here. And the word of the Lord says this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Bor answer him, answered him. What happened from Shittim to Gigal, and what that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what good the Lord requires of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city and is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measures that, are, that are, is accursed? Shall I quit the man f- with wicked scales 
and with a bag of uh, deceitful weights. Your rich men are, are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongues is, is deceitful in, in their mouths. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and What you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in her counsel, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. And this is the word of the Lord. This is interesting. As I was reflecting upon this, ironically, I thought about marriage. And uh, as I was sitting there reflecting upon pre-counsel marriage, marriage pre-counseling, I was reminded of, of some of the sessions that we had with our, our uh, it was our professor actually, who walked us through premarital. And I remember one of the things he talked about. Yes, it's a very specific question. Who controls the remote? <laughs> yeah, I see the ladies nodding their hands. And you go, I was like, why are you answering? Why? That means nothing. Like, who cares? Like, I don't care. Like, it's a remote. Like, it's a piece of plastic with some gadgets inside of it. Like, who cares? And he says, he reminded us at that moment that expectations are important. As small as they may be, as simple as a remote, they are important. Expectations are important. Uh, You even think about that when you get a job. When you first get your job, one of the questions you should be asking is, well, for the job description. It's not just a job description. Those are a list of expectations that your employer has for you to do. This is what you're called to do. So do it, right? We all have expectations, in marriage, we have them. In, 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 uh, with friendships, we have them. That's why we get hurts when a friend doesn't meet those expectations. But as I look at this passage, that's exactly what is happening here. We see actually a picture of a relationship here. It is like a husband talking to his wife. The expectations, the promise, the covenant that was made at the very beginning is not being fulfilled. So God comes and he says, look, Things aren't really going well. Expectations aren't being made. And he comes here. There's a charge. There's a breach of promise that has happened. It's it's spiritual idolatry that is here. Israel has not fulfilled her marriage vows to God. And he is rightful. His rightful expectations of a husband have not been met. So what happens, what has happened is that Israel has, has lost interest in their God. They wake up in the morning and they're no longer in awe and wonder of the God who called them out of Egypt. The God who saved them. The God who redeemed them. And they just don't care. And it shows in their actions. Because it comes up over and over again as we've been reading through Micah how they've been treating the people, the poor, the marginalized, the, the social outcasts. God is judging them for how they've been doing their businesses 
and conducting business in their world. But what we need to see here is that this indictment isn't here just to pass out judgment, but it is a plea to renew loyalty and love. It's a plea from a loving husband coming back. Come back. Come back to me. So here in this first five verses, we're reminded that we need to remember what God has done. And that's exactly what God is doing here in these first five, five verses, remembering what God has done. In verse 1, we see, hear what the Lord says. The language here is, is personal and passionate. You can, you can kind of hear it kind of come through. Like a father pleading with his child or a husband pleading with his wife. This is a plea of a loving God to his people saying, come back. Come back. A God whose heart has been broken by his people's rejection of him. And he's pleading. And as he pleads in verse 2, he calls the mountains and the foundations of the earth, which reminds us of Old Testament, promise, or Old, Old Testament covenant in Deuteronomy where God actually calls the earth to bear witness to the covenant that is about to be made. So he calls those same things back and says, look, these promises, this, this covenant is not, has been broken. And he goes in verse 3, Oh, my people. God reaches out to his people with his tender love and brings one step further. He, he even invites those people to complain. Right? God is so sure of himself that he has fulfilled his promises, and he has. That there's no reason why his people are acting the way that they should. But they are. He says, oh, my people. Something that I've been looking at this is, is, is as we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, some people come along and say they're two different gods. The God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament, and that's false. right? In this passage, you see God's tender love coming out for his people. Come back. Come back. This is what you were created to do. You were created to worship me and you've walked away from me. I've redeemed you. Come back. Come back. And then he asks this question. How have I wearied you? Why are you doing this? Have I not upheld my end of the promise? See, if people are looking at your life, what is your life showing? Does it show a life that has lost its wonder in who God is and what he has done for you? Because that's exactly what has happened here. The people of God have, have begun to take this for granted, his grace and his mercy. See, the charge is a breach of covenant. It's, a, it's spiritual idolatry. idolatry. Israel has not fulfilled her marriage vows to the Lord. His rightful expectation as husband has not been met. Israel has lost interest in their God, taking his blessing for granted and has gone its own way. So this indictment, this lawsuit has the purpose not of dispensing punishment, but pleading of a renewal of loyalty and love to his people. Come back. Come back. 
And then God comes and he, after he invites people to him, as he's, he's challenging them, I dare you, he's saying, come bring some charges to me. How have I wearied you? And God answers his questions in verse 4, for I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You were slaves. No better than cattle. You were nothing. And I brought you out. I brought you out. I brought you through the wilderness and I brought you into your promised land. I brought you there. Look at what I have done. Remember what I have done for you. Have, I haven't wearied you. I liberated you. And then in verse 5, oh, my people, remember with emotional intensity. Remember all of my saving acts that I had done for you as, as you were just learning to walk. You were the baby walking along and I walked with you beside you and, 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 and held your hand as you learned and established yourself. I provided guidance through a pillar of fire and cloud. I gave you food and water. I even gave you capable leaders. Not perfect, capable Look at what I've done for you. How have I wearied you? And as God breaks down this thing, the obvious answer in these first five verses is that he has not. We know in the New Testament when Jesus says, my yoke is light, my my burden is light. He he, he mends the brokenhearted. He he calls out the weak and establishes the weak as strong. We, We see these things. God hasn't wearied. And how often do we read these words and hear yet another sermon? And I was thinking of this for myself. And lack the awe and wonder of what our God has done for me. Think about it. This isn't new. Israel struggled with the same thing. Am I so blah about the grace of God? Do I sit and say, oh man, the gospel again, like how many times do I have to hear that? God has saved us out of slavery to sin. He has bought us by his precious blood. And it's an amazing thing that should never get old. It should actually become more and more joyous as we become more and more aware of God's holiness. I was reminded of this in a sermon not too long ago that, uh, by Woody Bachman. He said this. He said, um, the amazing thing is that God knowing what you said yesterday, what you thought yesterday, what you did yesterday, didn't snuff you out in your sleep. God is good. He is gracious. And when I lose sight of what he has done for me in light of his holiness, I lose the awe and the wonder. I no longer desire to fight the sin in my life anymore because I've lost the the sight of his holiness. No longer am I joyful anymore because who cares? And we come to this and think, what does this have to do with me? So let me remind you once again of what we have experienced with Christ. We sit with a lack of wonder of who God is. Have we forgotten what God has delivered us from? He confronts my sin at this moment of time. Right here, he's confronting my sin. I'll leave your sin to yourself, but this is here. If I come to gather with the church 
and lack the wonder of who he has done, what he has done for me, there's something seriously wonder, wrong with my heart. We play in the dirt of our sin because we lose sight of who God is. We take greater pleasure in other things rather than him. With Israel, they took greater pleasure in their money more than they did their God. They began to elevate the gift above the giver of gifts. I was, and I'm just amazed at what God has done for us. So be reminded today of who God is. Fall on your face in awe and wonder that a holy God, knowing all of these things about who you are, still saved you. You did nothing to deserve it. So we come and we praise God. We sing these songs. We lift up our voice. And we, if we're Baptists, you know, you go this high with your hands, right? Like, the hold, hold the baby position. And we worship our awesome God. God didn't call out his people, though, as we continue to walk through this passage, save them from bondage, deliver and guide them and, and lead them so that they could live their lives for themselves and practice injustice. He did all of these things so that they would know his righteousness. We see that in verse 5. Every act that we see God doing in our life causes us to be in more awe and wonder of who he is so that we may know his righteous acts and begin to embody them in our lives. One-time offerings, even really, really big ones, even the really, really big ones, totally miss the point if they aren't done with a life of fellowship with God and love for our neighbor. God did not save you so that you could be merely outwardly religious. He saved you to walk in a close fellowship with him and to be his agents of mercy and love and love in this broken world. God hates these wrong attitudes and he points us to what he really desires in the next two verses. Remember what God desires as we look at 6 and six to 8. And Micah speaks for, for people of every age asking what God wants for sinners. This is an interesting part. This is probably one of the more popular verses in the Bible. Everybody uses this one. Like there's non-Christian organizations that use this stuff except they forget the last part, which is to walk humbly with their God. Can we come to this passage? What shall I come before the Lord? What do, what do I have that could possibly make this right before God? And God breaks this down, and he says, well, let's break this down. Okay, and it goes from cheap to more expensive. Did you notice that? From one item to a thousand items to my child. And God says, no, none of that would suffice. None of that is goody, good enough, as he says in verse 6, as 7 and 8. The Lord, will the Lord be pleased with thousands? No. Thousands of rivers of oil? No. The firstborn of my transgressions? No. And before we come along and say, oh, God requires us to sacrifice our children. No, that's not what the text is saying, okay? In, in the Old Testament, in the, in, in the Ten Commandments, it's actually detestable for God, for people to kill children. Right? It's, it's, it's an act of evilness. It's ultimate evil. God wipes out kings because of this. 
It's in their, in their list of indictments. And he comes and says, look, what I require in verse 8 is he has told you, O man, what is good already. See, God does not require a human sacrifice, but he did make us pay for, he did make, he didn't make us pay for our own sin with our own children. What God requires is that we rest in his all-sufficient sacrifice of his own son. What a scandal of mercy that this is. God did not make us give our firstborn for our sin, rather he gives his firstborn for our sin. Romans 4 verse 25 says this, Who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? Who was delivered up? Look, this is good news. This is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So when we rest in his all-sufficient sacrifice, we didn't die for a sin. Christ did. We rest in that. But his death doesn't leave us in the state of sin and rebellion and brokenness and shame. It continues to work in us. This is a great song by this guy named Josh Garrels. It's called Fate Forgiven. I love it. It says this, Bread of the world and mercy broken, wine of the soul and mercy shared, by whom the word of life is given, and in whose death our sins are dead. In you we are forgiven. Sins are forgotten, paid in full. See, Jesus paid it for all so that we wouldn't have to. And if we are resting in anything else but Jesus' work, we still have a debt to pay, a debt that we cannot pay. And Micah is making it really clear that religious rites, even if they are approved by God, they could never accomplish the atonement, the payment that only comes through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which means this, if you show up at church every Sunday and aren't resting in what Christ has done for you, uh, hey, Owen, you should still come to church, okay? It means nothing. Squat. I don't care how many senior ladies you've helped cross the street. If you've got all the badges of what do they call the, the Boy Scouts and the Eagles, whatever it may be, I don't care. God doesn't care either. If it's not accompanied by a heart that is humble before God, it means nothing. It means you're trying to get into heaven based upon your own works and not the works of Christ. And God says, they're squat. They mean nothing. So we need to rest in what he has done for us. He has moved us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And our desires begin to reflect his own desires. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. This is, well, like I said, one of the best well-known verses. How does a heart that rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ look like? He gives us three things. Justice. It is someone who, 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 who much, who's committed to doing good, to helping those in need. In the Bible, we see King Solomon practicing justice, right? Remember the story with the prostitutes. And, and one of the two prostitutes, one of the babies died, and, and Solomon does this clever little thing. He threatens to cut the baby in half so that each woman can have a half. And then the woman who's truly, truly the mother says, no, please don't. See, in that act, Solomon, King Solomon, was practicing justice for the prostitute. 
We need to be people who do that. We need to practice justice and, and think about that. You know, and I was, as I was thinking this through, how we need to be people who are committed to helping those in need, I was thinking that ultimately, I think it's, we think of the homeless in, in London and, and downtown or even around here, there's people on every corner, how we should be helping them. But as I was sitting there looking at this passage, I reflect, I have right across from me, I have a picture of my kids. And I said, in our day and age, the most gravest or the most worst, let's say, worst injustice that we can possibly have is the killing of unborn children. That's atrocious. It is a sin. It's awful. How am I sticking up for the weakest of our society? That's the question. Am I fighting for those? Those who, 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 who are the weak, who are the marginalized? Are you practicing the type of justice and righteousness that God requires? The second is this, love kindness. So I don't go out there hating all the people who are walking into the hospital to have an abortion. I love kindness. I say to them, maybe I say to that young woman who feels trapped, and I say, how about this? How about you come live in our house? Your family kicked you out? How about you come live with us? How about, how about I adopt your child? How would I be a picture of what God has done for me? He's adopted me. How would I adopt your child? Make this child that you seem that you can't raise or whatever else is the excuse and I'll make this child mine. We're called to be people who love kindness. The word here is talking about loyalty, mercy, fidelity, steadfast love. It's about the stronger helping the weaker. It's about, the, about this being a central place in one's heart and affections. Practicing justice is something that we do. But a lover of kindness is something you are. And being that someone who practices justice doesn't come out of a sense of duty, but becomes out of a genuine reflection of our hearts. And the third is this, to walk humbly with our God. I love the tension that's created here. Our faith isn't just faith. It, it spurs us on to act. It doesn't leave us to continue on living the same way. We, we are changed. Walk humbly with our God. This is the greatest requirement. It, it shows a real relationship. To walk with God is to accept his vision, his values of life. As our, one walks humbly with God, one begins to have loving kindness and also practices justice. You can't do those first two unless you do the last one. See, more than our worship, money, or service, God wants our hearts. Those whom God saves by his grace live for him in obedience, mercy, and prudence. We really need to think about this, what God has convicting us of our lives. We need to think about it as a church as well. We need to be asking this, what is our church concerned with? What is Noelwood concerned with? 
Lots of churches are concerned with a whole lot of other things, right? They're concerned with the fine performance of music, eloquent homilies of distinguished orators, or great-looking stained-glass windows, or they're full of putting on a, a, a magnificent worship with large numbers of attendants and, and the ministry of the Spirit and some sort of hip pastor or speaker with his glass podium and his <laughs> bottled water. Actually, it wouldn't be bottled anymore because that would be bad. That would be taboo. So it would be uh, one of those stained-glass cylinder things. Yes. You know, what are we concerned with as a church? What am I concerned with personally? If someone challenges us to concern ourselves with social justice and the poor, are we tempted to reply, stick with the religious topics? Don't talk about the everyday matters. Remain in the sacred realm of where God's name is to be adored. Micah would rebuke us. Jesus would too. When Jesus laid down his life for his people, he did so in, in order that they could be filled with his spirit and live in, light, in, in a new life. But Micah keeps things in tension. If I go out and I seek to alleviate the, 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 the injustices of this world without pointing them to the internal justice, injustices, if I don't point them to, to, to the God who, who is holy, then I have a problem. Like, I could give people food all the day long. I could go to someone on the street and give them a million dollars, and their life could be good. I could pay off all of their debts, and everything would be great. And I think that would be cool to do one day if I ever had a million dollars. That would be great. Never going to happen, but there's other ways I can do that. But if I don't tell them about the Jesus Christ who saved them from hell, they are now rich, but they're still going to hell. It means nothing. I need to do both. And that's what he's saying here. Do good. Require, do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Do both. The tensions are here. The flowing from a deep faith in Christ and what he has done for us. So let me challenge us with this. If I relieve the stress of the poor and the weak, but don't address the need that goes beyond the grave, I am just being cruel. God is just as concerned about the physical situation as he is the spiritual. As we will see in these next verses. Remember that God will judge sin. And in this last section, in these last sections of verses 9 to 16, God begins to show how they have been sinning, how their business practices essentially have been ones that marginalize and continue to, to, to hurt the poor and the injustice. See, God will remember your sin. We see that in verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness? The answer is no, you can't. You you shall sow but not reap, he says in verse 15. Because of your actions, I will be against you. And then in verse 16, he comes and says, For you have kept the statues of Ormai and all the works of the house of Ahab. You're just like Judah. You're just like the northern kingdom that I just wiped out. You did not keep my law. He didn't obey me. God's people haven't walked with him and his laws. Instead, they have kept the law of some of the worst kings of Israel. Their king, their king, their father and son are famous. These two guys are famous for their injustice. 
Like these are the type of people that killed the guy so that he could get a vineyard. He was pouting like a little child. And he goes and kills the guy so that he could get his vineyard. These are the type of people that God is talking about, that they are following in. They were disasters morally because God's people have chosen to follow them. God gives them over to those desires. As you read these next few sentences, judgment is given out to the people who have taken advantage of the poor and the weak. There will be no rest for them. There will be desolation and dissatisfaction. There will be hissing and scorning. You know, I, you struggle with this. Uh, I'm a, of the younger generation, and a lot of us are all about social justice, and there's been this swinging thing here, right, in our culture. Woo, let's do all about helping people. Great. You know, but what about the gospel? Right, so I struggled with this. Right? I don't think we, I don't know, we do a great job at social justice. I, I love it. We have our, uh, our food covered. We, we help over in our community. We help whenever we can. You know, we got this bike thing going on. You know, we got all these ministries. We need to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It's not just for those in this passage. It's not just for those people who have business practices, though, that do these things. But for all people who have sinned, God is addressing in these few verses all people who have sinned. But for those who confess and repent, there is this amazing truth that comes through. In Jesus, there is rest. Christ became desolate for us. He experienced hunger and thirst and bore the mockery, hissing, and scorning that we rightly deserved so that we can enjoy God's abundant blessing and glad welcome. So, so what? Who cares? I got three things. God commands us to establish a presence in the city. That's clear. God calls us to be in our city, to be present, to help the poor, to go give out lunches, whatever it may be. We need to be aware of the the importance and the depravity of our city and invest in it, the very city that we live in. There's a great need for Christians to live in the city, to operate honest businesses and to spread spread godliness through our streets. There's a great need. London is broken. It is totally broken. I can say this because I have a, a new... We're broken as a city. We need Jesus desperately. We also need to, God directs his people to seek the peace of the city. We need to be a good neighbor. I was listening to my neighbor lecture their daughter about the importance of being a great neighbor. I was like, good on you, man. Shovel the sidewalk. Like, guys, shovel the sidewalk, okay? Clean the street, plant some trees, feed the poor, volunteer at school, be nice to the person at the store. But above all, to seek the peace of the city is to introduce people to the Prince of Peace. If you want peace in this city, they need to know the Prince of Peace. They need to know Jesus. And what he has done for us on the cross. Third is this. 
God calls his people to pray for his city. We need to pray. We need to be praying for our city, our politicians, that God may call them to, the, to faith so that they may know the hope, the joy, the love that we know. We plead with God to use us as individuals, as families, as a church for the gospel work of salvation in our city. Because this is the thing. More than our worship, more than our money, more than our service, God wants our hearts. Those whom God saves by his grace live for him in obedience, mercy, and prudence. Let us continue to worship our awesome God who saves us by his grace.